Hey, you guys, I am so excited to introduce you to Callie. Um, Callie Russell, um, some of you may know her from Alone. She was on season seven um, and she got second and she was a super badass and has all these really awesome survival skills. But I can tell you as her friend and have known her for years before Alone and everything else, what made Callie so special on Alone in terms of her um, it's just, it's really easy to see it fast, how kind, um, thoughtful, positive, looking for the silver lining. Um, she's just, you know, you didn't get to see her interact with a lot of people in that format. Um, but she did recollect multiple times about her family and what she loved about her sister and, you know, the whole Cajun sparkle thing and all that stuff. And, um, that part that made her so lovable on that show is what makes her so lovable in life. Um, she just has this really amazing gift of seeing the positive, being grateful, being kind, being thoughtful. She's incredibly hardworking. She's just a super pleasure to be around. And, and I'm excited to have her on um, because we have this really cool, fun backstory with pack goats and with doing hunting camps together and and all of that was just a super pleasure. And so, Callie, I'm so glad you're here today. I'm so excited to spend some time catching up because we just don't get the time to catch up anymore. You're all famous and shit now. And now I can't talk to you all the time. And you're not my camp cook anymore. And shit like that. <laughs> I know. I miss it. Well, thanks, Mark. That was a really uh -huh. kind intro. And yeah, I miss being camp cook. I like being. I felt like camp mom, you know, I liked that. <laughs> totally. Well, and the Wrangler, right? It was just yeah. for, for people who don't know that the whole pack goat piece, I mean, most, most of my following is associated either around hunting, backpacking, but the, the cornerstone is goat packing and goats in general, just people who own goats. And, um, um, for people who know goats, they get it is that, you need somebody in camp if you're going to be doing what we did at the scale we did um, to help with the goats. I mean, they're, they've got labor to them as well to make sure, especially my herd, you know, my herd right now, dynamically, you almost have to get them to go eat. You know, they want to hang around camp and they need to take care of their nutritional needs. I don't always want to hunt with eight packers along with me because they're loud. And so to have somebody kind of making backcountry elk hunting easier that's staying back at camp and making sure food's ready. And, you know, when I'm guiding hunts like that, I am dust till freaking dawn plus physically going after it. And there's no time for a nap if I don't have some help. And so, um, you know, and, and your experience with goats was so critical in that. And, you know, you're the one that, you know, your goats are where I started. Um, and so for people who don't know that backstory, I mean, your first, your first, um, my first recollection of you was through Canon. Canon speaking, Callie and Canon were a couple. Um, they had spent five years on public land. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, about that. Yeah, living well, living with our goats. Yeah, right, right. Quite the yeah. adventure. I bet. I bet. Yeah, I'm sure you guys got. I mean, I you know we'll go into the cougar attacks and all that fun stuff, and you know the amazing the amazing things you guys experienced. But what happened is eventually. Um, as a couple, you guys had chosen different paths and Canon had um, basically 
just gotten to the point where the goats were overwhelming and he was going to sell some of his goats. And I ran across that and that's where I got Chester, Dewey and Raven. And, um, and Chester, who I just literally buried like four months ago, um, was just a super high quality, super special entity. I mean, I would, I would literally call him like a sentient being. He was so yeah. special as an animal. He had, he had goat, goat magic, but he had extra goat magic. He was just a super cool goat. He did, you know, all of our goats, we had nicknames for him. And uh, we always called him Buddha Buddy because he just had this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why did you call him Buddha Buddy? Yeah, we called him Buddha Buddy because he just had this, this, this sense. It was like he was this, you know, you always say anointed beings, but he mm. really was. It was like he was this enlightened goat. And, um, you know, we would joke that he was our therapist too. We're like, oh, mm. we need we need our therapist and we'd just be sitting by the fire and he'd come over and just, you know, just set his head down and let us, you know, scratch his chin. And he was such a special goat. He had a really, yeah, really unique and special personality. But yeah. So when you, that like, when you, when our lives cross paths was when after Cannon and I had been together for many years, we've grown this pack goat herd We'd been living out in the wilderness, living on public land and just living, living off of the goats for many years. And um, it was awesome and really intense, too, because we didn't have a base camp. We didn't have a home base to just go and land somewhere in the wintertime. So all year round, we were always out. And in the winter, it was, you know, challenging to find um, find places because a lot of public land, um, the the places that are designated for public land are usually very high elevation places. Anything that's low elevation, people are living there or it's farmland. And so it, even when we'd head down uh, into Arizona and Utah and the, for the winter, we were still in the mountains and right. uh, it, it's challenging. It's cold. And for kidding season, we were out there too. So finding a, you know, a good place that we, the goats could have their kids. And so just year after year of that was, incredible it was just uh, an adventure that i would you know definitely do over again or i wouldn't take it back you know i just loved that life and the adventures that we had i mean every our year was just jam packed you could write i mean it's like almost every month so many things would happen we could have a novel about it you know it was just full on right. and um after a few years though there was a little bit of burnout but mostly it, you know, Cannon and I, it was just time for us to go our own ways. And so we had to disband the goat herd, which was really heartbreaking, but it was just too much for one person to handle. And, um, and so we found you and you, <laughs> you came and took some of the goats and gave them good homes. And, you know, we had been at that point, we had already been you know, we had a much bigger herd and we were sort of trying to find homes and, you know, some of the goats that we, you know, we chose to to eat them and just trying to downsize and then get the herd down to maybe where one person could take care of them. And it was just still, um, too much to be on the road all the time. So then, um, yeah, that's where, and then, uh, and I love the goats so much. I still wanted to be in, I didn't want the goats to just not be in my life anymore. And so that's when, you know, you and I really became friends is, you know, at first it just started, I was like, well, I want to, I want to be in touch with Mark because I want to be able to still hang out with Chester, Dewey and um, Raven, which we call them Jester, 
face plant and Raven. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, I remember the first, the first time, the first time I met you was at, uh, uh a burger joint in McCall, Idaho. Yeah. And I, that's right. And I had invited you guys to come up and be an elk camp with me, my family and I, and that was when we really got a chance to connect. And at that time, I was trying to figure out how to have some lifestyle and be a goat owner, right? Which you know is the challenge, right? If you have you have milkers and you have packers and you have a farm, that's like this big giant anchor that holds you to that property. Mm-hmm. And you represented somebody that I trusted to know how to take care of goats that could hand milk a doe. I mean, as soon as you're running a hand milking operation, your ability to say, hey, will you come over and help me out for a couple of days? <laughs> it becomes pretty complicated, right? So let me show you. Squeeze the top and then accordion down. You know, I mean, the, how, do you, how do you milk a goat by hand instruction, which you and I both know takes two or three days really to kind of figure out and to do well. And when you covet the milk, like we do when they're not milking a goat out all the way and they're not good at it, 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 it like has long-term consequences. So you at that time represented for me, I know I represented for you a connection to these goats you loved and you represented to me at that time, somebody I could trust to be with them. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, I kind of thought the farm sitting and then, and then we started getting into, and then I think our first real extended backcountry experience was in Elkville. It was, yeah. 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 And Ivan. And that was such an amazing experience to have you in there and the food was so good and that camp is so special. And, you know, we struggled on elk hunting that year, but um, that was super fun. And then, you know, it just kind of rolled forward from there. Um, So anyway, that's kind of. That time in Elkville though, I know that was a rough year for hunting, but that the elk that you dropped was nighttime and it was a full moon. And I remember you guys walking me in camp to bring the goats. And so we were coming up to you guys where you dropped that elk and the, we were in the dark, 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 and then popped up over the ridge and there's the full moon was rising over. It was so, that was a really beautiful night. I remember it very vividly. No, super cool. Yeah. I remember that. That's where that year we had shot two cows Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, traditionally we're quite successful in there and that year we really struggled. So, Mm -hmm. but anyway, I, yeah, that's cool. You remember that so well. I know that Ivan and, and Willie often ask about you and how you're doing and Ivan, you know, has been kind of sideline following, you know, your shenanigans and what's happening with Callie and all that fun stuff. So he's, he's such a gem of a guy, just such a gem. (laughs) Um, I so still let's, need to let's make talk. them some elk hawk pouches. That's that's still that's right, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, no, nobody will hassle you about that, but I'm sure they would love that. I forgot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So so currently, um, tell us kind of you know w- where you are, what you're doing. Uh, I I need to know just as much as the you know the listening audience because you know we just don't get the opportunity to catch up as much as we used to. So so tell me what's happening in your life. What's going on? Yeah. Well, you do know this, that I got back. Well, let's see, I guess where to start. I don't know. Well, after alone season seven, um, I got back into goats and you know that cause you helped me, you know, locate some of the choice, amazing goats out there. So I've been full back in it and it's been 
you know, quite a handful. Cause I, I always said I would get back and I wanted to get back into goats, but I was going to wait till I had a home base. Uh, so some land to base out of, and then, um, a community, you know, cause I didn't want to do it alone because it's just, it's a lot of work alone and it can be quite isolating too. Cause like you say, you, everywhere you go, then you have a herd of goats that goes with you or you have to try to figure out someone who can watch them. And that's pretty complicated. So, um, so I've gotten back into goats and it's been really fun, but I am doing it by myself. I do have some land that I can base off of. So that's been really fun and being able to just really start to build a little bit of a home base and, uh, you know, set up some setup. I'm in a, it's all off grid. So in the winter time, it's pretty, it's a little, it's a little tricky in the winter time. Water is tricky and everything's tricky because we don't, there's just a little bit of solar power and, you know, but anyway, so I've been um, really working to get this spot set up as a good base, um, a base for wilderness adventures, um, or, you know, a place to be at between long-term wilderness adventures and teaching classes and that kind of stuff and have this space set up for classes too. So just building, it was just, you know, raw forest land off grid. And so been working and um, building a goat area and a little garden area and um, built a little, um, like a little tiny house uh, too. So, cause I've been, you know, me, I've just been in canvas and my right. tent for I guess a decade now I've been living just my home's been a tarp or a tent a canvas tent with a wood stove and so um just kind of putting trying to put a little bit more infrastructure in here it's still really basic <laughs> but um yeah and just taking care of the animals raising the goats getting them strong and I take them out on walks every day and so they can eat wild food and going out are, on goat packing trips are you able to forage them uh, full time or are you having to buy any supplemental feed or are they just foraging? Well, in the summertime, they're foraging full time. So they mm -hmm. just eat wild, 100% wild food in the summer and into the fall too. And then um, it depends where I'm at. So if I can get down to the Southwest, then they can forage uh, wild food down there in the winter time. This winter, I chose to stay up. I'm in Montana right now, and I chose to stay up here. And so I still take them out on a walk every day, and they're um, wild foraging. But I'm supplementing with hay because really the only thing – I mean, we have a foot and a half of snow on the ground, and it's zero degrees out, and the only thing that they can really – that they can really get at is the Doug fir needles, Doug fir. And then there's a few places under trees where there's some Oregon grape leaves, but it's pretty, pretty minimal. So I am feeding them hay, um, which uh, before with the first herd, the winter moon herd, I call that herd, uh, Cannon and I called that herd the winter moon herd. And then this is the Capricorn mm. herd. Uh, no, but with the winter moon herd, we never bought food for them. I mean, there was a few times where we were going to be driving through the desert and had a long haul through the desert and bought a bale of, a bale of hay or something. But for the most part, I mean, 99% uh, of the time they were eating wild food. So, cause we could follow the seasons and, mm -hmm. um, you know, next this year too, I still, we'll see. Um, I like doing that. I like following the seasons with the goats instead of buying hay, but this year it felt like the thing to do is stay here and feed them hay. But I think they'd like to go to the Southwest. 
Probably. Yeah. I mean, that's my boys, you know, yesterday I got them to follow me up the mountain and, you know, do that skiing thing. And that was pretty fun. And since then we got another foot of snow. I mean, it's, it's crazy outside. I'm, I'm going to need to think about shoveling some roofs that I would be concerned about carrying the snow load we have right now. We got over two feet outside and for where I'm at, that's just a lot, you know, it just is. Um, that's not normal accumulation. At least I don't think so. This is my first year on this ranch. And so I'm just kind of getting, and, and as I scan, I'm literally looking outside and it's just dumping and, and piling up around us. Um, and, and, and it's one of the things that I want to talk to you about is that, you know, there's this devotion that you have to the way that you live and, and that devotion to, you know, the modality and the, the way that you live and being, um, self-sustaining and doing what you love and having goats and being rooted in nature and, you know, being a minimalist and all those different things. And those are all really beautiful, but they also come with this like carrying cost, an opportunity cost, mostly in the ability to have some form of just leisure. You know, my right now that it's the same for me. I'm, um, I'm choosing to try to set up a 48 acre, you know, horse farm or horse property and turn it into a, you know, five to seven pasture goat property that's going to be off grid and have fish ponds and, you know, the ability to house multiple people here on the location. And the reason I want to do that is because I want, you know, my mom's getting older. I, I want to feel like I'm doing what it takes to take care of my elders um, I mean, what a, what a beautiful, it has been so beautiful to be able to be in service to my mother, you know, and to say, what do you need from me today? And, and to see her dealing with her own fallibility now and recognizing the things that she can't do that she used to be able to do. Um, you know, I've probably witnessed my mom cry over the last three or four months more than I have in the entire relationship for that I've had with her 50 years. And it's really because I'm like, I've created space and I'm present to her awareness that things are going the other direction now for her and her ability to remember and physically do things and um, seeing her mate decline and, and those sorts of things. And and so it's been so beautiful to create that space for them. And then that's also another opportunity cost of sorts. Now, I, I feel so lucky to be present to that. And I also feel so lucky to have ground to set up where I can set up, you know, basically a pass of dirt that can feed and protect me and the people I love for generations. I mean, what a gift that is. But at the same time, I still want to go bone fishing somewhere in the tropics right now too, right? <laughs> I still like doing that stuff. And, and for you, the lifestyle you've chosen to be minimalist and to be, you know, uh, as you call yourself, are you still associating yourself and you can answer this with it, but having a balance where relationships become possible and leisure learning and growing and those significant conversations that we have that are so juicy with the people that we love lots of times get pushed aside for just the amount of work it takes to do what we're doing. Now we're doing it differently, but you know, I, I often tell people about you guys and the story of you guys living on public land. 
and sometimes that snap adjustment is or 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 judgment is well that's just somebody who doesn't want to work right and i'm like fuck that's the hardest job you ever did because the work never stops right (laughs) yeah exactly constant yeah. yeah yeah well when you have animals you never get a day off and when you're living outdoors, um, it depends on the weather, but you don't get a day off from the weather either. You don't, you know, every single day you need to go haul water. Every single day you need to gather firewood. You know, every single day things need to happen. And when storms roll in, you know, you got you to gotta get, get things going on. So it's a, it's a ton of work. And I mean, I've been doing this for, you know, for a decade, over a decade now I've lived, um, either just, you know, out in a tent somewhere. And just in this last year, I've been working on this tiny home to kind of have as a base. Um, and mostly just because if I stay in a, in a colder environment like Montana for the winter, I am going through a ridiculous amount of firewood. So just the tiny house basically to conserve firewood usage um, for when I'm, you know, and then, then a base camp too, then it's always here and it's not going to rot or mold if nobody's in it, you know, while we're off on our wilderness adventures. But, um, the point is after, you know, 10 years of living, um, choosing to live off grid, um, you know, you kind of get burnout and sometimes, sometimes I'm like, gosh, it would just be so easy to just get a job, whatever job and go put in my 40 hours a week. And that's it. (laughs) You know, just put in the 40 hours and then that's, you know, if that's all you have to do to pay the bills and then call it good. But, um, I know that that's not fulfilling for me because I have tried that life and I know that this is the life for me, but it is, it's whether it's the animals and the weather you're always on. And then also, you know, how I make a living, I do, you know, I try to, part of my life goal is to reduce the amount of money that I need and I choose to live a certain way. So I need less money and need to make less money but I, you know, still use money and, um, and how I make money is I, you know, I work for myself. So you don't get a day off when you do that either is, you know, if you just work for someone else, it's like you put in your time and then you have time on and time off. And when you work for yourself, you're kind of always on, you're always thinking of, you always have to be engage your creativity and your, you know, you, you know, your, um, you know, just like creating new ideas and how you're going to make that next dollar. And, uh, how you're going to get by for next year. So it's a little, uh, it takes, it takes commitment and it takes work. It takes all those things. And, uh, um, but yeah, people do judge. I definitely, when I, especially on the public land thing, they're like, Oh, you're just going to be lazy and live on public land and stuff. It's like, Oh no, it's, it's for my mental health. It's not cause I'm lazy. It's way, it's a lot hard, a lot harder of work. I think, um, it'd be easier it'd be more comfortable and easy just to have a 40 hour a week job and be able to flip on lights and flip on the heater and have a cozy, warm bed and a washer well, dryer, you know? Oh yeah. Well, that's, that's the part of it. I mean, the part, the part of that, that people don't get about being long-term in the backcountry and doing long trips, you're dirty, you're uncomfortable, <laughs> you're eating subpar food, you're, you're using tons of energy Lots of times sleep becomes difficult because you're vigilant at night. Um, there's, there's so many different parts of it that are just uncomfortable. They're not as comfortable as a bed in a home and a, you know, I don't have to do so much work. I mean, you know, just, 
as you know, I mean, just the process of keeping a campfire running when it's like in October versus January when it's cold. I mean, it's just, it is a ton of work on every level between water, food, shelter, and warmth. I mean, those four things are 70% of the day, you know, there's, Mm -hmm. it's just a, it's a funny thing. So I, I just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's so few people that have, I think there's people that understand the skills of what, what you have, but there's so few people in the world today that have actually lived in the way that you're living, at least in, in America. Um, I think there are other parts of the world that that's a daily, you know, that's a daily life thing. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't, th- I think the assumptions about what that feels like and what it, what it is like. I mean, I've, I've said it before. I mean, I literally have been in the back country before exhausted, malnourished, underslept, um, and I'm laying there after like, you know, my third week. And I remember looking at a plane and I looked at the plane with envy going, man, that guy's got a soda sitting on his little tray. In front of <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he's warm and he's going to sleep in a bed tonight. And, and I looked at envy with somebody on an airplane because it was, it's, it's just hard. I, I'm pretty tough and I got lots of will. Um, but yeah, you, you really, I mean, I, let, let's, let me ask you about this because this is something that just boggled me. And I'm so curious to know this about you. I've been watching alone since its first season and I've always been intrigued by with it because I feel like it's the most authentic, realistic look at the mental, which is the big part of it that the other ones miss, but the mental and the physical toll that happens with backcountry survival, especially when you're given the weather that you guys have to face and the lack of tools and prep that you have, right? You literally have to prepare everything. You know, I've often said if, if, if the shit hit the fan and it was summertime, I would have a good chance to thrive in the backcountry. But if it was middle of the winter, I'm not sure. Right. And the fact that you guys land in September and the shit starts hitting the fan by, you know, mid-October, it was already getting zeros and colder. I mean, I mean, that's really uncomfortable. That's really hard. You're dealing with hunger. You're dealing with lack of connection. The mental component eliminates like 50% of the people right out of the gate. The, the mental need for human beings to have togetherness and to have um, association and we are a herd animal. We are meant to be with one another. And there's only certain personalities on that show that seem to, it's not that it doesn't bother them. They just deal with it better than other competitors. And, and I'm so curious to know how you thrived because I mean, you know, you were eating all those bunnies and stuff, but I mean, you know, you were just wasting away because it was pure protein and you just weren't getting the carbs. So, I mean, you were on the Atkins diet for, what did you make it? 87, 87 days, right? 89, 89. 89 so days. three months. Yeah. About yeah. Three months. So three, out there. three months. So I, I really am curious what you believe makes you super special or different to be able to be alone for 89 days. Now I know that you saw camera crews when they check on you every now and then. I would be curious if that gave you relief, at least some sort of connection. What what makes you special, do you think, 
what part of you makes you be able to deal with that better than other people? I mean, what I'm curious what, what you think about that. Yeah, it's a good question. I think that that's definitely one of the things that people are sort of intrigued by when they see, um, you know, see part of my story out there because not only was I out there for three months alone, I, I stayed pretty joyous most of the time. Um, right. And I guess just to answer for about the, the camera crews did come out every, the times it was really weather dependent when they would come out, but it was roughly every two weeks or 10 days or something like that. I would have thought and, it was more it, often. Thanks for answering that. Yeah. And it's funny because they, um, they really want for the show. The most interesting part for people is the, the mental aspect, you know, cause that's what fascinates us really and makes the show really interesting. Um, I think the mental, the mental aspect is, um, you know, really captivating. And so as the, the people, the producers, they want to make sure that gets on camera. So they want us, they want us to struggle in a way because it makes for better TV. And so when they come out to, um, just weigh us and make sure we're not dying of an infection or whatever and, and grab, um, swap out batteries, they try, they're told, um, to not like to interact with us as little as possible. So they're kind of, like not supposed to do small talk, you know, cause we, you know, they come to see us to just grab batteries real quick. And we, you know, we want to be like, Oh, you know, how are you? How, what's that going on at base camp? Like what's going on in the world? Like, how, you know, what'd you have for breakfast? And they're just like, no, you, you should have seen this shit. Yeah. They're just like, they like really try to not give us that sort of human contact. They want us to still feel alone. And it's, it's so funny. Um, Anyway, so I just wanted to speak to that little little bit of it. But, Please, yeah. And it surprisingly that um, the the med checks were really a really hard part of it, actually, because I would be some people loved them when they'd come out because they're like people. I get to see people. I'm so excited, and I I would get so in my I would get so in the zone. I was in the I was in the zone, Mark, and I was just tapped in in this way that is really hard to get into in normal life, just so present. And um, then when they would come in, it was like this crazy flurry of energy and different people and different smells because all your senses are on fire. You know, my sense of smell and everything is, is way more than normal. So I could smell every single person. I'm like, I smell 20 different smells on you, 15 different smells on you. I can smell your lotion, your shampoo, your deodorant, what you had for breakfast, like the, what you just drank, like all these different smells on people that throw mm. off, throw everything off, like stuff like that you wouldn't really think of. And mm. so I really didn't like when they would come in because it would take me a few days to get back to this place, this flow state that I would find myself in. Um, anyway, none of that's an answer to your question. <laughs> well, it, it but, is of sorts. But, I mean, you had, you had, you had this place, this, this recognized spot or platform that you would pull back into that you would feel a loss of. Right. And, and, and in some ways I can relate to that, but here's how I can relate to it. I can relate to it. it. It's seven days for me when I'm in the wilderness for seven days, cars become loud, voices become loud, bright lights become too bright. Smells become obnoxious. 
um, that my sense, as you said, you know, I mean, I'm really taken aback by things for a couple of days. Once I'm about seven to nine days in the backcountry, when I get out, just the drive out is always really arresting to me. The first city I come into and I got to get gas and now I got to deal with a gas station attendant that I don't know who's giving me the niceties and I'm giving them back and they don't really mean anything. All, all that stuff feels so foreign and so, so you found this and that's the only way I can really relate to it. I, I would have to say that I don't think that there has ever been a really, I'm sure there are some studies, but most of humanity does not know what you dealt with. They do not know genuinely what it is to be alone. I don't think that there are many people anywhere that don't interact with another human being for longer than 24 hours their whole life. Mm -hmm. So for you to do it for 89 days and to find a sweet spot of serenity within that being a herd based, you know, entity, I just find it fucking so curious because I am such a willful guy. I, I, I'm not scared of shit. I, You're, I will it's do, true. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm just, I will do anything because I can use my courage button so well and just lean in. But I, I've been asked to, you know, I've entertained being on alone as well. And I just know, I feel so scared to be alone for that time. I am such a people person. I just feel like I would flop. I don't, I think I'd be one of those people that would go out in the first week because I couldn't deal with the aloneness. So I find you so curious how you found serenity and peace and fulfillment and courage. And you just didn't get wore down to a bloody nub. I, you know, I just, I'm so, so baffled by it. I'm so awed by you. Well, thanks for, yeah. Remember you were, you were one of the people who told me to go on alone too. And you'd always, you're like, you need to go on that show. You got to go on that show. And so you really encouraged me because I was super shy. I didn't want, I didn't want to go. I was like, no, I don't want to go on the TV, but you, mm -hmm. you helped encourage me among uh, some other people were some key players and pushing me to that place. But, um, yeah, what, what was it for me? I think, well, I just is, I mean, some of it comes down to personality type, I think. And I am somebody who just really, uh, enjoys alone time. I love people. I, I really, really love people and love spending time with others. Um, uh, but I also really like my alone time. And I think, um, I think, you know, part of it, Mark, well, this is just one aspect. Well, that's kind of a rabbit hole, but um, <laughs> it's, it's okay. I, Grab it away if you think it's relevant. Yeah. Well, one. Uh, yeah, I guess for me, I really knew that this. I well, I appreciate alone time, and when you're alone, all the these things come up. A lot of stuff comes up for people, and if you've never really been alone before then you deal with all of that on the show. And I think a lot of people experience that it's really hard. And, um, for me, I had spent significant time alone before. And so I've kind of gone through some of the things you kind of have to push, push through that discomfort where you're like, Oh no, I'm alone. It's not, I've like, you, you know, you start to feel like, Oh, I have to call. I've got to call my loved ones. I need to make sure they're okay. How do I know they're okay? You know, all this kind of things that come up um, when you're really out there and, um, and alone in that way. And I had spent that time um, and I've just spent a, a lot of alone wilderness time. So I think that that helped me out. And 
my, I think the intentions around it too, because everybody has different intentions. And for me, I really was viewing this as this sort of rites of passage. And, you know, traditionally in cultures all over the world, people went on a vision quest or had this sort of rites of passage journey. And a lot of it, a lot of them had some aspect of being alone in the wilderness and, you know, going on this journey that's hard and challenging and then being able to come back to your community a better person and bring back these lessons uh, that you received during that time. And so I guess I just really, I knew that that's what it was about for me. I was, so I embraced it. I guess I just embraced embraced the, the aspect of being alone and knew that it wouldn't be forever. And... I guess too, Mark, like in a lot of ways, I didn't really feel that alone. I, I literally was alone. There was no other people out there and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't even text somebody or anything. There was no communication with family. And when they would come out to do med checks, they, they wouldn't be like, oh yeah, your boyfriend's okay. Your mom's doing good. Or your mom says hi, nothing. Like, so you don't know what's going on at home at all. Um, so in that way I was alone, but I didn't feel it because one, I knew I just have a great family and friends and, you know, a part at that time, my partner and like, just really felt all this support from them. So even though I was far away, I just knew that these, all these amazing people were kind of like sending me that love and support. And then also just nature, I feel really connected to nature. And so I, you know, I feel really connected to the rocks and the trees and the animals and the birds. And so instead of feeling lonely, I found, I found friendship, like the gray Jays, you know, they were always in camp and they would follow me around and wait for me to kill something because then they knew if I got some food, they would get some food too. They'd get some intestines or something delicious. And so I had these gray Jays following me around and had these, these friends. And I had a a short-tailed weasel that lived in my shelter with me. He moved in same reason. Cause there was like little, you know, guts and little bits of stuff that he could eat. And so I had these little animal friends and, you know, just seeing a Raven fly overhead, just in this, like the right moment, right at sunset, a Raven would fly over or just, you know, seeing the, the birch trees and just the way that the, the plants and the animals really felt fr- like friends to me. And, relatives in a way. So, and I knew that without them, I wouldn't be able to be there. So I really felt supported by the land and connected to the land. And I got to see these wolves really up close and I'd hear them howling at night. And I didn't, I didn't feel fear from them. I felt like they were like my brothers and sisters coming to kind of give me the nod, like welcome to the neighborhood sort of feeling. I just, I just really felt, I didn't feel other. And I think that that's like some of our loneliness as a culture comes from being so focused on the individual and seeing everything else as this sort of like us and them. And then we get these sort of like species loneliness and Mm. out there, I, I, it's, I know it's very weird, but I didn't really struggle with loneliness at all. Um, because I felt, I just didn't, I felt like I was connected to the, the plants and the animals and the rocks and the wind. And I don't know, I was just in the fire too. The fire was a, a really close friend. And so I know so it sounds like ask- a bunch of hippie shit, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it does, it sounds like some crazy hippie shit, but like for me, it just really, 
I just didn't feel alone. I felt connected to that land in this really deep way. So. Well, you you helped you helped me make sense of it, right? I mean, I asked you that question genuinely because I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't make I couldn't find a place that could understand, and now 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 I do um, because I you know, because of the work that I've been doing, you know, the last couple of years with plant medicine and understanding how energy flow among all living things is present for those who can pay attention. I believe in some ways we've had those sensories to that chiseled away. You know, I mean, we've, we have these like really beautiful capabilities as, as human beings to be plugged in, but it's almost like we've, um, we've sanded off all those antennas with, Know, this unintentional living. When I say unintentional living, I don't. I just don't think we were intended to be in cities. I don't think we were intended to walk on concrete. I don't think we were intended to sit in front of a computer. I mean, our bodies can't even function properly because we sit so much as a society. I mean, you know, and and you know, and on and on and on of this environment that we've stacked around ourselves, all under the guise of comfort. But what it's done is it's displaced that natural connection to natural things. And, and I think you have a unique piece to you that that's everyday business. And so because that everyday business, you have, you have that connection. So now I, now I understand better. I'm grateful that you explained that in the way that you did, because, um, yeah, it's really interesting. I I've always, I've wondered if I would be that guy on that show, <laughs> my my ego is so invested in being able to do what somebody else can do right i've always pe people have always seen me be they've called me like competitive right like mm -hmm. man you're so competitive it's not really that the energy that would other people would deem in me as competitive is that i measure what's possible by paying attention to what other humans can do and i say well there's no reason that i shouldn't be able to so it's not that I want to beat people. It's that if somebody else can do it, then I should be able to either through will or determination or, you know, if I can't rest on my talent, then hard work or, or whatever it takes. Right. I've always kind of in some areas of my life, I've been able to do a lot of things really easily. And some others, it's been painfully arduously walking with concrete shoe, you know, to, to, to do some parts of life for me. And I, I lean into that stuff. It really makes me curious. And now that you've explained that to know if my connectedness, because it's more than it used to be, would be able to find that space. I'm, I'm really genuinely, I literally in this conversation went from thinking there is no way I would ever set myself up to fail in the way that I think I would in alone. And now I feel intrigued to see if I could find that place because it is, it is a place and the, the connection is the land and the energetic flow. And, um, did you find yourself talking to yourself? I'm curious. I, I, I would envision me talking to me or other things because that's how I process feelings and emotions and energy. You know, that's my process. And then the other way I do is through work, like yeah. projects, chores. When, when I'm, when I'm out here on the farm, I'm talking to myself and I'm doing work and, and people probably think I'm fucking crazy, but you know, <laughs> did you find yourself talking to yourself or like those, those long winter nights where it was dark and it was only light for six or seven hours in the day. Right. Yeah. That is a 
a freaking time sitting there it, around the campfire. I mean, how did you, how did you, were, were number one, did you struggle with boredom? And number two, did you talk to yourself much? I'm curious. Right. Well, I was never bored, ever bored. I felt there was always more to do. There was traps to be made, nets to be woven, you know, animal or rabbits to skin. There was always stuff to do. I never, ever was bored. You know, every night I had a kind of a to-do list for that evening or on the fire. And then the next day there was always, always, always stuff to do. Um, and, uh, and then did I talk to myself? Uh, not really, but you have to remember the camera is sort of the camera sort of becomes your your friend too in a way, and you you love and hate the camera. I'll have to say because it's like this annoying uh, baby you have to carry around, and you can't every time you're ready to do something. Oh, you got to get the camera and the diaper bag. You got to get the batteries and the memory cards and the tripod and you know all the stuff. So, but the camera sort of serves as that. I think if, I wonder, usually when I'm in the wilderness without a camera, I don't talk to myself much. I'm pretty just quiet and I listen a lot, but I do sing. I, um, I, I'll sing, uh, sometimes. And I think that that's nice. Um, but yeah, on a loan, it's like after they want you to do all this stuff. It's not like, oh, just film whenever you want. They're like film all the time. And you have to do a morning journal and an evening journal where you say everything you're planning to do that day. And then everything at the end of the day, say what you did do and what you didn't do and how you feel about it. And, you know, you have to, they want you talking to the camera all the time. So basically after fulfilling the obligations of the camera, I didn't feel like talking anymore. <laughs> I bet. I bet. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I certainly understand that because I've spent most of my adult life, you know, in front of a camera and filming and either teaching or in the hunting industry. And, you know, for me to be able to just walk around in the woods with no camera following me is a, a luxury. Um, I nice, really huh? enjoy. Yeah, I just enjoy connecting in a deep way. And, you know, and also, too, I feel at this point in some ways, you know, that it's an obligation that I have to be, you know, sharing this this, this 30 years of what I've been doing, um, you know, into these systems of raising goats and running pack goats and hunting and whatever. I mean, there's, it's, it's financially giving to me, but it's also obligatory to pass along that knowledge. You know, I believe we have an obligation to not have our story end and not have all this accumulated wisdom, um, not be, put out there for somebody. I mean, this is, this is kind of what this podcast is about. I don't, I don't really have any plan for this. And, and, and if it never generated a single dollar, uh, it would not, it would not, it's not my goal. My, my goal of this podcast is to positively influence as many people as I can while I walk this planet and not in a way where I think I am some enlightened human just in who I am and what I have and the stories that I know and um, in that human experience and my willingness to, to, to be honest with my frailty and the things that I'm scared of and the things that I suck at. Um, if, if I'm, if I feel like I'm an example, it's that I'm transparent, but do I have it all figured out? I don't, um, you know, you and I got a chance to be, 
on a, you know, a documentary that's in the editing process right now, that three-year project. And, you know, I mean, it's the, it's basically this deep dive into the subject of death. And I don't think it was any mistake. I mean, the fact that we were on there together and how that all came about and, and um, the beautiful wisdom you had to lend that way. And, you know, I've never talked about one subject for 21 days around a campfire. Right? <laughs> and, and that's what we did. Right? You know, and speaking about that subject of death and all its nuances around it. And then Barlow and his brilliance and Barlow's the director. Um, for those of you um, wondering who Barlow is. I mean, he was a beautiful man. The cameramen were beautiful men. The sound guy was a beautiful man. You had such beauty in your story. Our other um, talent guy had such a unique backstory and such interesting reference that he came from. And, you know, it was just, by the way, too, I have to tell you that I got a chance to interact with Monsel quite a bit down here. It has been so beautiful to see his evolution. Um, He is really, it was like, He's, it's like he's, he's pressed fast forward on growing up. Um, it was really beautiful to see his difference in just, I think, three years now that we've, that I've known him. And so anyway, um, I'm not quite sure where, where that was going. Let's, let's adjunct to that. Um, tell, tell me kind of philosophically what you believe the, the greater mission that you have here is because I know you're, you're somebody who, who feels dutiful to humanity and, and, and um, has identified what you believe your role is supposed to be here at this very moment. And I know what it used to be, and I'm sure it's probably still related to that, but because of alone and your bandwidth and how many people would listen when you speak now, I'm sure the gravity of those messages have, have, have increased, you know, because they, they, they go to thousands of people. How, how do you, what do you kind of see as your mission now? I mean, what, what, what are you trying to do beyond camp and live with goats and, and make a few bucks here and there? What's your, what's your greater, what's your greater good? Yeah, that's an awesome question, but I want to jump into it, but I just want to say, speak to what you were talking about, how, you, um, you were talking about your vulnerability and I just want to say, Mark, that, I mean, you know this, but one of the things I love about you is your vulnerability because you're just like this. And I always tell people, I was like, Mark is so awesome because he's like this super strong, like macho hunter guy. He's like this incredible hunter and he just, he's a credible, like, you know, uh, sort of like creator and businessman. And you just like make things happen and you're like there for your family. And you're like this, this like a a really good man, but you have like, you really show your vulnerability and you really speak to like, yeah, this is what I'm good at. This is what I struggle at. And you're just really transparent and authentic in that way. And I just love your authenticity. And that's just something that is, is I really love about you, Mark. And just is a, such a good example of like a very strong masculine man that you can that, that that is what makes a good strong masculine man i think is someone who's as strong as you and as talented as you but still able to just be really authentic and talk about emotions and talk about 
you know, struggles and stuff. I just really love that about you. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to say that. I'll, 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 I'll rub that in. Thank you. Yeah, pat it in. Pat it in. <laughs> yeah, I've had to get better at um, trying to pat stuff in, especially with this, all the attention from alone. Cause I'm like, Oh no, no, like, don't, um, it's all good. Like, don't, uh, you don't got to say anything nice about me, you know? <laughs> and so mm. I've been trying to shift that a little bit instead of being so deflective, be like, okay, like, what does it feel like to actually receive that instead of be so quick to deflect? Um, that's something I'm trying to work on. And, um, the alone attention is definitely making me work on that. So, <laughs> Well, let me, but, let me speak to that just really quick before we go yeah. on to the question. So yeah. number one, I'm, I'm deeply grateful for your acknowledgement and I accept, and uh, I have worked so fucking hard to get to that place. I didn't always have that. And unfortunately, because so much of my life was fraught with, if you really knew me, you wouldn't love me. And all the little kid ways that I stacked around me this shell that you might receive or love, because if you really saw what was inside, you wouldn't. And all the, you know, the, the, you know, the, cra the crazy part about being somebody who creates a false self is that how it's perceived by people who see it is disingenuous, selfish, um, dishonest, and, and they're right. But the root of where it comes from is just, um, a brokenness, a, 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 an opinion of self that's low enough to where it's a, it's a hungry to be accepted and loved and how I am is so unacceptable that I have to create this false persona around me. And so for me, when I run into me 20 years ago and, and how much of my young life, that was just a, a core of who I was, a cat on the screen saying, please just don't discover who I really am or you will reject me. And then all the fucked up ways I tried to convince you that I was something that I wasn't. And I pushed you away in the process and the, the heartbreak of that and the, the, all the different things that, you know, it's people like me that with the struggles that I had are some of the most fervent love seekers and the most exceptional love destroyers. Right? Yeah, true, <laughs> true, true. So, so I really, I really soak that up. And I know that there's this little part in me that still believes that maybe somehow I'm this imposter. And at the same time, hearing it from somebody that I hold as dear as I do you, you know, for me, I'm on the edge of tears talking about it because it's just, it just means that I've worked my ass off to find a soft space for that. And I feel you know, really grateful that I've been able to find that. So, hey, on that moment, hey, Tucker, Storm's out. Will you put him back in and discover how he got out? Sorry, my livestock guardian, guardian dog, Storm, <laughs> I just saw him poke his head out. He's pretty good at getting out. Um, uh -huh, yeah, so, they're hard to, uh, hard to, uh, we have a minds of their own, those dogs. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So um, I wanted to say, uh, so I wanted, uh, what was the question I asked you now? Um, just like my bigger life philosophy and goal and purpose kind of thing. But, yeah, what, um, you know, what do you see before, that? I almost okay, have to respond to what you said though, but because really Mark, it's, I think that it, that's just so natural for us to have that like imposter syndrome thing to come up. Be like, Oh, do I really deserve like love? Do I really deserve recognition? Like, am I really as talented as people think I am? You know, that stuff. And it comes up 
you know, now for me being all of a sudden, like from going, living this like super, my life was really in the shadows because especially I was living in a gray area of legality as far as where land and stuff I was living on and everything. And then, so it was really like, you know, kind of a secretive shadow life. And then to just boom, be put out into um, center stage like that. I mean, those kinds of things come up for me, like, wow, do I really deserve this sort of recognition? Am I, you know, am I as like awesome as people think I am and all that stuff. And so I just think, you know, having these really these conversations where we can really just be authentic and share that stuff is so healing for us and for everybody listening. And I just, yeah, really thanks for um, receiving the acknowledgement mark because men, you know, all this talk, I think there's a lot of people that are struggling to find like healthy masculinity and true masculinity. And I think that you're just a really exceptional example of it. And uh, so, and that's because you can be this, very strong, talented man. That's also really authentic. And I just, I love it. So thanks for receiving that. And um, yeah, thanks for saying so. And that's in yeah. Cali. That's, that's what I want this to be about. I want, mm-hmm. let's talk about goats, but let's also talk about this, the, the struggle, right? I mean, I, I had a gathering here at the house, you know, of people that I have, I have this community that we've built around this ranch of, people through very intentional living community that are getting together in a, in a ceremonial setting to sit down and say, we collectively are supporting one another in the evolutionary process of being better humans. And in that we get to voice the struggle and we also get to voice the victory and, and the, the, the whole room has the ears for it. And that I call it a conscious contact, right? Um, we have lost in some ways our intimate conscious contact with our community. And it, I think it happens in some churches in smaller settings. I think it happens in some occupations and I think it happens in some families, but I believe truly deeply intimate conversations where we can talk openly about the things that we are scared of, that we feel we're horrible at, that we're trying to work on. It is, it is such a society geared now about everything's all good. My relationships are all good. I'm a good parent. I'm a a good worker. I'm a good earner. I have a balanced lifestyle. I can't be a grumpy shit ever. I don't have that thing in me. That seems to be the norm now. And because of that, we have like this really false opinion about what normal is because what normal is assumed, like, like for example, um, I, when I got a divorce, it was one of the most difficult situations I've ever dealt with in my life because I believed I could will myself into long-term marriage. I believed I just had the grit to do it. And my kids deserved my grit, right? They, they didn't sign up to be in a divorced family. They signed up to have a mom and a dad in the same house. And so I, I hung on to a challenging marriage for a long time. And I figured it was my role to pay the price. I had to I had to be tough enough to pay the price of a of a of a challenging marriage long term because they didn't they didn't I didn't I didn't want them to pay the price. 
And what I would say that I learned from that is that my ability to be, to feel shame and to feel all those different things like I had failed. Luckily, I had a community around me and some really good books. And a book was really helpful to me. It was called Conscious Uncoupling. And every book it seems I read has one super gem that just smashes me right in the nose. And that book did. And what it talked about was that if you think about your intimate relationships throughout your life, you really only have long-term, long-standing, genuinely intimate relationships with about five to seven people. And almost all of those throughout your life will end and not because of death. Either it's separation, discontentedness, letting a relationship go, whatever it is. But marriage and like best friendship and deeply intimate relationships, when those separate, our belief structure tells us that something went wrong. There's something wrong with this equation that that happened. And what that book acknowledged was that if all or the majority of like 98% of the relationships we build in our human existence are going to end, then why the fuck are we calling something wrong with that? That's just the process, right? It's exceptional when it's long-term and it's through family or commitment or whatever. That really special, super lifelong relationship is, is exceptional, but it's certainly not the norm. And what's crazy is society deems this separation as abnormal as or something's wrong. And that ends up being the self-reflection. And so when somebody gave me the permission to say, oh, oh, yeah, a lot of relationships just end and that doesn't have to be bad or mean that something was wrong. It just is. And so it's just it's stuff like that that I think is so profound. And this conscious contact with these groups, you know, and, and sitting down and talking with you about it. I could be having this conversation with you and be so fulfilled because of the transparency and what I learned from you and how you reflect back with the thoughts. And this is what it's supposed to be. Not niceties, not, hey, you, you know, so that's where campfires become so valuable, right? Yep. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that, I mean, kind of ties into your original question about, you know, what's my bigger like life philosophy, goal, purpose, mission in life. And it ties into everything you're talking about right now. And what we were talking about earlier with loneliness. And I think it's really interesting because when I was living in the wilderness on the alone show for three months, literally never felt lonely. I know it's weird, but I didn't. I've been in the wilderness before and definitely have experienced loneliness in the wilderness. But in that time, I did not. And But where I felt most lonely in life is living in the city. It was when I can pinpoint some really specific times in my teenage years and in my college-aged years where I was living amongst you know lots of people, going to school, going to work. But I felt so lonely. And it's, I think, because of that lack of connectedness and the lack of really deep connected relationships like we're talking about that are so nourishing um, for us as, as these, you know, sort of communal uh, herd pack animals, you know. And 
for me, my big, you know, all I'm trying to do, I'm just trying to figure it out too, but I'm trying to figure out how to live a fulfilling life. And when I was sort of living the life that was just handed to me, like, okay, like, you know, go to school, go to work, buy the house, do, you know, do what we're supposed to do in our, in our culture. Um, and you know, be a successful human. I felt so depressed and so lonely and it took me a long time to really pull myself out of that. And I, um, received so much healing from the wilderness, healing and clarity and lessons and really got in touch with my authentic self from spending time in the wilderness that for me right now, you know, I really want to share with that with other people. And so I'm just sort of exploring what it means to have a fulfilling lifestyle, a fulfilling and healthy lifestyle, and know that for me personally, spending time in the wilderness is where I feel most joyful, most peaceful, most connected, and really wanting to hold space for other people to find that connection and that joy. Um, and that healing, really. And so that's, um, I guess I was trying to say it in a concise way, but that ends up being a little bit more long winded than I was going mm -hmm. for. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that's, you know, basically, it is just really exploring a lifestyle that feels fulfilling to me, and holding space for other people to really dive into the connection that we have as humans, um, which I really think being close, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people being a little bit closer to the land, having a connection with our food, having a connection with, um, with the land that we're living on, and um, being able to help to help build it, too. Because I think we also feel lonely and depressed and all these things is because I know for me, when I learned what <sighs> how we got to where we are right now and what industrialized society and culture has done to our ecosystems and to many cultures, so many cultures of people and the destruction that's happened. It was so depressing to me and I felt so hopeless, you know, like how do, where do we go from here? And I felt myself really sort of drowning in that hopelessness and that depression and anxiety of having, you know, feeling like there's just no hope because as you know, all because of all of the destruction that our, our lifestyle is causing uh, to the planet. And so I've really dove into like, well, what can I do about it? You know, what are the things that I can change in my lifestyle? Like, how can I create a lifestyle that actually feels healthy and feels good and feels connected? And so that's the journey that I've been on. And I've been on it, um, I still have a lot to learn, but enough to where I can, you know, be teaching classes and offering experiences for people to really kind of dive into that themselves. And I've really noticed this really strong connection between our like personal growth and healing um, and then our connection and growth and healing when it comes to the environment and the ecosystems too. And I think that they're really linked. And so focusing on both of those things together has been, you know, part of, part of what I'm up to is trying to bridge, bridge those things and link those connections between when we really work on ourselves and start to try to heal our trauma and do what we can to be more whole 
individuals that are, you know, capable of feeling like peace on a daily basis and, um, and, and being able to communicate clearly and be authentic and be able to share our real selves with other people and not have to, you know, wear a mask all the time. Like you, you know, you were speaking to, and when we really work on that stuff and really become our whole selves, then we are starting to work on our relationship with, we start to heal our relationship with the environment and how we're treating the environment and start to see these connections on how we can actually create a better lifestyle. That's not only better for our mental health, but better for the land that we're living on too. Mm, wow. Super interesting. Uh, I think that, <coughs> I think that, you know, divine orchestration, um, God's hand in finding key humans at this moment in history is using discomfort um, with what what is and then a internal interest that seems to be sparked. You know, we had what it's two years ago now where people learned that in a fairly minor situation that was dramatized by all the powers that be because it helped them sell more shit or get more powerful. Um, then what happened was we were willing to bonk each over the, over the head for something to wipe our ass with. And, you know, when, when you put neighbor against neighbor, young person against old person that believes that their need to have toilet paper is greater than the person that's standing next to them. And that was all that, that, that was just like this little minor, like really interesting example of what we're capable of when we're in a position of feeling like we don't have enough or the capability to survive or, or those sorts of things. And what ended up happening from that is that I think that there was a large portion of humanity that was awakened to the fact that the things that are more natural are going to be more supportive. And so the exodus out of the cities, the, the, the entrance into small town America, the, the yearn to buy homesteads, the yearn to learn about, you know, prepping and, and all that different stuff, survival, hunting, all those Pat goats, yeah. All those <laughs> interesting right now. All the all those industries right now. I mean, like goats, for example. You know, I don't know if you knew this, but goat goats are the fastest growing segment of agriculture right now in America, and um, I believe it's basically because it's one of the most doable stock animals for a novice city dweller moving to. You know, chickens number one, goats number two, and you know, you have the capability to now protect yourself with, with food and sustenance and, and feel, I believe there's this collective energy where people want to feel like they're going to be okay. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, in these unsure times and seeing this crazy inflation and this crazy legislation and all this different stuff that we're, we're all experiencing. It's like, you know, we, we blew the world up and made it super accessible. And now all of a sudden we're shrinking it again. And, you know, going into a store felt scary for a lot of people for like a half a year, not a week, not, not in a major catastrophe, but I even felt like 
skeptical of the next human standing next to me, whether they potentially presented me harm, right? For the, the people who were truly scared of getting sick, which I got over like very quickly, but people that are still walking around seeing their fellow humans as a potential harm to them energetically, that's really a, that's a, that's a heavy energy to, to be waiting amongst in these cities. And, and there's a lot of that. And so I think that the serenity of a farm, the serenity of your animals, the serenity of connecting to nature, this is your time. This is my time. We are the people who've been living this way for a really long time. You even more than I are the way we're living looks different, but I believe people are, are hungry for what we know, and they're hungry for what you feel. They're hungry to know how it feels. It should feel natural to feel how you feel when you're sitting at a campfire. A lot of people don't even know what that feels like, you know? Right. You know, or to walk in the, like I remember one time I was on a fishing boat in Alaska and there was this really interesting guy. He was a Hispanic guy and he was tatted just from head to toe, face tats, everything. Had I judged him by how he looked, I, I, I would have missed this gem. And, and he had this thing that and he was really well-spoken and highly brilliant. And we would talk on the boat in Alaska and the boat in Alaska was miserable. I mean, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. It was so hard. Six weeks of hell. And we would talk. And one of the things that he said, he goes, uh, he goes, man, how do you walk in the woods in the dark? How do you do that? How are you not terrified? And I'm like, I would be terrified to walk in downtown LA. How do you do that? Because that's where he was from. And the reality is when I walk in the woods, the only reason I want to have a headlamp is so I don't trip and fall or bump into a stick. It's never because I feel scared. But that is not how most of humanity experiences the woods in the dark. They're literally scared because of the lack of familiarity. And I believe that's not natural. I believe that having a natural flow and a working relationship with the woods and with the land, we're beginning to come back that way. And I think people like you are a, a beautiful example of what that can be. I mean, you know. I want to be like you, you're, you know, you got so much. <laughs> in the way. And, well, and, and it's not that I want to be like you with living in a tent and living in a tiny home and doing that. It's I want, I desire your level of peace. I desire your ability to find the soft spot of I'm okay. So consistently and so easily because from that place, you have this like big ability to give out from that. You know, it's the people who don't have enough of themselves that can't offer love and kindness and gratitude because they're always trying to fill themselves because they don't have enough. And you're so full, your, your cup spills over to say, and you have extra to give. And I just, I think people want that. I think there's a lot of empty cups. I think urban yeah. dwelling empties people's cups. It doesn't fill it. Yeah. Yeah, I really think that we're on our way back, Mark, as a as a culture, as a society. We I think people are really starting to feel that and we're on our way back home, you know? We're on our way back home to figuring out a way that we can all live together in a way that that feels right for us. It really speaks to our humanness too because it's true the the 
the environment, the lifestyles that we've created for ourselves, sure, they're convenient and they're comfortable and it makes sense how we got to where we are because, you know, life, you know, living out, you know, how we all used to live just on the land and small groups of people, like no doubt that was hard. It was really hard. And um, so, you know, whatever, life moves on towards this convenience and this comfort, but we've, we've given up too much. I feel like we've almost get, we've given up everything for convenience and comfort and it's not worth it. And I know for me, how I felt, you know, when I was going, when I was, um, you know, living in a urban environment and working my job and, um, paying my rent and doing that, I felt very unfulfilled. I felt, um, you know, yeah, my, my cup was empty. I felt lost, confused, um, sad, depressed, angry, you know, wanting to make myself feel better with, you know, unhealthy, you know, unhealthy activities and just trying to, um, you know, wanting to, to find that place of the just peace, you know, and not have to be in so much, um, mental agony all the time. And, I know I felt that and have, you know, found my way um, into a lifestyle that feels much better for me, um, you know, mental health wise, but also I feel like I'm, you know, doing something. It's just a small, you know, it's just like a small piece of the puzzle, but trying to play a little bit of a role and helping other people find that way back home too. Because like you say, so many people I think are really awakening to the unsettledness, the unsettled feelings, the, you know, being overwhelmed um, by fear, feeling that, you know, really having this sort of scarcity mindset, and there's not enough, like, I'm not going to be okay, there's not enough, and really trying to shift that into this, this place that it's like, no, we're, we're all going to be okay, like, there's enough for all of us, we just have to, we just have to come back home, you know, and for me, it's been a, it's been a long process and there's still more of a process, but, you know, I really started getting into the survival skills, the wilderness living skills, the ancestral skills, whatever you want to call them. I got into the, that skill set because I had this deep desire to, I wanted to be able to, um, be able to take care of myself, be able to be self-sufficient. And I wanted to, be able to live um, directly. I wanted to meet my needs directly from the land and not be, um, you know, meeting my needs through a way that was basically contributing to the destruction of cultures and people and ecosystems. I wanted to find a way that I could feed myself basically and clothe myself that wasn't so destructive to our world. And, um, so I got into the skills because I was sort of seeking this freedom, like freedom from society, freedom from this, the culture that we've created, um, freedom from the rat race of trying to earn money. You know, that's why I got into it for the sense of freedom. And I found that in a lot of ways. But what's interesting is it's really led me to a place of mental freedom. And I think that that's what this is all. You can, whatever way you get there, it doesn't matter if you get there you know, there's a million ways to get there and you don't have to go live under a tree like I did. But it like all the lessons that I'm getting now when I go into the wilderness are these lessons that are helping me be more mentally free, like true freedom doesn't have to do with your physical skill set. True freedom is in your mind. It's with your mental skill set. And that comes with the kind of work that we're talking about, you know, and like the work that you're doing with the people 
um, the community that you're building on your land or the, you know, the land that you're, you're taking care of. Um, and yeah, for, for me, really, I really like want to help if we work on ourselves as individuals and like work towards having, being able to have the capacity for mental freedom, um, then we, we, you're free. And, you know, obviously it's never perfect, like still like fear and scarcity and all that stuff still comes up, but it's a lot less frequent, you know? And so Mm. I think that that's like some of the tools that you and I have like discovered in our different life paths, I think are really needed right now. And it is, it is like the time to be sharing this stuff um, in a greater, in a greater and bigger way for other people. So we can all all be in on it, you know? <laughs> right. No, I understand. So let's, let's switch gears a little bit. I want to, I want to kind of, you know, head, head down the path of wilderness living because I find in the pack goat community, there's this, this assumption that goats are these fragile need to be, um, taken care of cause they can't take care of themselves animals. And, um, in, and that sells them short. And I, and I really want to speak to like your experience. I believe we need to be their stewards, but they're way tougher and smarter than we think they are. One of the most intuitive eaters and um, healing, their healing capabilities are amazing. And you guys, because you were out there with goats, you faced things that I haven't. Um, you know, you had a cougar attack and you had, you know, uh, goats killed by wolves and you had, you know, you were trying to basically doctor goats in the back country with ripped open, you know, udders and, and all kinds of things. And, and I'm really trying to help. I believe the pack goat community, like, I mean, you know, I mean, there's, it's when you put yourself out there, as you know, there's always somebody ready to tell you what a jackass you are, right? Just, there's always somebody willing to do that. I mean, I, I just did a video. I mean, I've, I've done every form of castration there is. So I've done Berdizo. I've done the little cattle banders. I've done early castration. I've done late castration. I've had a vet come out, slow, you know, slid open their ball sack, pull their balls out, you know, cut them off. Um, I've done it all and California bander and all that stuff. When I look at the whole picture and the effect on the goat, I've just made the decision that in my opinion, and it's not by, it's, it, it's not by a huge way, but it's probably a pretty big way that I think the California banner is the most successful, most humane and my choice. And literally the first two people on there told me what a, you know, rat bastard I was for, you know, you know, torturing my animals and doing that stuff. And it's just, it's just not accurate information. And so w- when I speak to the toughness of goats and giving them the credit they deserve, that things like using goat coats only in certain situations and allowing them to forage in the way that they can be and trusting them and how they set, how I set camps for predators. You guys have experience with, you know, both healing and camping and different situations because of your guys, you know, amount of time that I think is really valid to speak to because a lot of my community is running either goats or pack goats in the backcountry. So first off, will, will you tell us the story of you and Cannon and the cougar attack and kind of the setting of it? Now, I, I want to mention this. And one of the things that I found really interesting is that 
I believe, and you guys believe, I think, that a cougar and a wolf is a very calculated predator. A bear is almost like a bumbler who is not dumb, but he's unafraid. So a bear will bumble into camp. A cougar and a wolf will lay back and really consider their choice and 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 they'll think about it because they're injured. They, they don't want to be injured by their prey, right? And I believe for the majority of time, you have a healthy wariness in cougars and wolves what, that doesn't show up so much in bears. That said, I've only had a bear in camp once. They chased my goats off. I had to go find them. He didn't catch any of them and everything was good. But you guys have had literally animals killed. And I, I, I want to hear the story because it's interesting as well, how you guys handled and what set up the cougar attack. Yeah. Um, yeah. Having, I mean, to what you're saying, goats are super resilient and amazing animals. And I think that's why they're such a top choice for a lifestyle animal as a, you know, a survival choice basically to live with them um, in the wilderness because they're so hardy and so tough. And I mean, they're in, in most environments, if you just let them go, they'll become feral. I mean, weathers, it'll probably is a little bit different for weathers, but I mean, does and billies, if you just send them out, I mean, of all the places in the world, there's feral goat populations, you know, all over the place because they just do so well um, on their own without us. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, and predators, but predators are, uh, that being said, predators are an issue. And uh, the one, yeah, one of one of those stories is uh, we were in Arizona um, in a wilderness area down there uh, wintering and we had wintered down there and then our goats had just given, uh, given birth and we had brand new little baby goat kids in camp. It was this really special time. Um, You know, winter was just starting to release her grip down there in the mountains and uh, spring was coming on and the kids, the goat kids were two days old. Um, Well, they were different, but uh, the, one was just born and then the next, so one, some kids were one day old and another batch was two days old right there. And then, um, we were all just sleeping. We were sleeping in this sort of, um, like teepee, um, teepee tent thing. And the, the goats were sleeping right outside of it. And there, uh, a mountain lion had come into camp. We had been there for a while. And like you said, I do think that the mountain lions are more, they're more calculated and they're going to kind of scope out an area before they make a move. And we had been there long enough for her to scope us out. Um, And then we had just, we, the goats had just given birth too. So there's a lot of um, smells in camp, you know, like the birthing smells and stuff like that. And uh, this in the middle of the night, you know, probably 3am, a a mountain lion came in and grabbed one of our mamas. uh, Lily Rose was her name by the, the neck right here and was dragging her out of camp. And I ran out um, because I heard it and it was, I mean, and it was, I like, I feel like I need more. This story is such a powerful story in so many ways, but that the energy off that cat was so strong. It was like, you could feel it in the air. She was just like this, this goat is mine. Like I'm going to feed my baby. Like I'm a mama and I need to feed my babies. Like this goat's mine. And I was like, no, that goat's mine. I'm a mama and these are my babies and you're not going to have her, you know? So I felt like this super strong energy. And I was like, there's no way I will fight for this goat. And uh, so we're like following it. And then, 
you know, Cannon jumps out of, he comes out of bed. Cause I yell, I yelled to him. I'm like, a mountain lion's got Lily Rose, but she's still alive. Like, you know, so he comes out and, uh, she's the mountain lions dragging her down our little footpath. Um, and we basically like, uh, intimidate her enough to, for her, cause we can't, um, we just intimidate her. I mean, I'm staying, we're staying, you know, eight feet away from her, just really close and yelling, shine, shining headlamps, that kind of thing. And, um, the mountain lion gets backed up to this canyon wall where she has to start dragging up. The only place to go is up. And she doesn't really want to do that with these uh, pesky humans following her. So she decides to, you know, drop, um, drop Lily Rose. And then she, you know, has a look at us. And, um, uh, but we, we were, you know, able to, to scare her off basically. And she has, um, well, I guess, well, so what happened is she, so she dropped Lily Rose and then she didn't just turn and run. She like sized us up, you know, she had this sort of look, look at us and, um, Cannon had a pistol and so wasn't able to get a clear shot the whole time because Lily Rose was in front of the the cat. And, uh, but then when she dropped her, he had a, had a clear moment and took a shot, but missed. And that scared her up the Canyon wall. So she, you know, ran, 30 yards up the canyon uh, wall and was kind of looking down at us. And um, Lily Rose like flops over, swan necks over. There's just like blood all coming out of her neck. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Lily Rose is going to die right here, right now. And I start thinking about how we're going to feed her babies. And I had like a really weird thought, like, should I like milk her to get the last milk for the babies? Like, how are we going to feed the, you know, like really, like I shouldn't have even thought that, but my mind went there. Cause I was like, this goat's going to die. Her neck is shredded. Um, but then she pops up. She just out of like, what looks like she's just going to die. She jumps up and starts yelling and looking for her babies. And so she runs back to camp uh, calling for her babies, but it's this hor- her neck's all shredded. So it's like, ah, ah, a horrible noise that she's making. We're like, oh my gosh, find her babies. So she stops making that horrible noise. And uh, we get her her babies and then immediately start just like, ripping up some t-shirts and stuff that we had to start to bandage her neck up. And, um, we had some, you know, plant medicines and that we were, you know, some, um, like comfrey and chaparral and some really good, uh, like plant powders to stuff in her wounds. And so every time we you know, found a hole and packed it with plant powder and wrapped it, we found another hole. And I mean, she just had, you know, a couple <coughs> really good holes in her neck and, her esophagus and her trachea were punctured. Mm. And we didn't know that right in that moment. Cause it was just these, these puncture wounds, you know, that we were just trying to bandage up. Cause this is, you know, it's three in the morning and um, we're just doing the best bandage job we can. But the next in the morning when it was daylight, we saw that her trachea and esophagus um, were punctured. And so when she would eat cud, it would come out of her chin um, that was the situation that we were in. Yeah, it was not good. Um, but she, um, she lived, uh, miraculously she lived and all with plant medicine. So we just doctored her up the best we could. And we're, you know, it took, you know, a month of us changing her bandages twice a day, um, and really being on it and making sure that her puncture wounds healed from the the inside out, you know, um, so they could drain and everything. And it was just a whole long kind of gross process, but amazing, um, that she healed and didn't get infected too. We were able to keep everything clean and, um, 
keep her from getting infected because cat bites are notoriously dirty bites that usually get infected. If the animal doesn't die from the wounds, they usually die from infection. Um, but right. we were, we knew that. So we just did our best to keep it clean. And she, she went on to live many more productive years and raise more kids and hike in the mountains and be a fearless little goat. Um, but mm, yeah, we, one of the things we would, yeah, one of the things we would do is uh, we were feeding her raw garlic too to help mm. keep everything clean. And that one of the cool things about goats is not only can you put plant medicines on them topically, you can feed them the plant medicine so they can eat more garlic than we can kind of stomach. And also we were feeding her chaparral and some other like antimicrobial, like really strong plants that maybe they helped, maybe they didn't, I don't know, but she, she lived, um, super tough. Uh, there, all the injuries, all the goat injuries that I've dealt with in the back country have been really, uh, I've been amazed at how good the goats are at healing. Hmm. Super cool. Yeah. Cause you've had torn open udders. You guys, I mean, Ch Chester, you guys, I mean, he fell off that cliff and peeled one of his, you know, hoof, hoof broke. Right. And then you, he yeah, walked his with the splint. Broke, yeah. Yeah. Hoof and hoof. he walked with the splint for a while and, and, you know, he never, but he never suffered implications from that, by the way. He never, he never had a place where I was like, yeah, that hoof's bothering him. He never had an issue with it again. So however right. he healed, it didn't show up as he got older or later in life. Um, he actually, we, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, which is amazing because when, you know, when that happened and we were in the healing process of taking care of him and stuff, we thought, mm -hmm. well, he's probably just going to be a sweater goat, you know, as far as he's never going to carry a real load, but just carry some sweaters, carry light loads. But he mm -hmm. ended up, you know, healing so well that he carried full loads and was just, you know, an exceptional packer for many, many more years after that. Yeah, for me too. You know, I mean, he yeah. was one of my go-tos that I could throw a lot of weight on and he handled it better than anybody else and still maintained his agility. I mean, I, I have that one video where he comes up to this log and just goes bleep, bleep, like that. And then my whole other string comes up and goes, uh, uh, and it goes over here and then the next one, uh, uh, and it goes over there, you know, and it, in that short film of mine, it really talks about Chester and how not only was he special, he was special on the trail too. And, and, you know, one of the super cute things, I have to tell you this because he was close to you and he, in his death process was really interesting. He, um, uh, so, you know, he, I, I mean, it, 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 he was probably like you if he was me. I've probably heard him bleat, make a noise about 12 or 15 times in his whole life. And it's always been when he's been separate from me, and he's come to me or I've gone to him or he's in some sort of angst or distress. He and his bleat is the deepest I've ever heard of any goat. He's like, <laughs> right? <laughs> he had yeah. this super, super deep bleat. And um, he talks to me so infrequently that what was really interesting was that he called to me in the pasture one time when I was walking past the fence and I was like, I wonder did he did that. And I watched him step over towards me and he kind of missed a step. Like, you know, he was off balance and I was like, wow. Okay. Um, hmm. Something's going on now. He was, I think he was 12 
when he passed away. And the average goat life, you know, really is kind of 12 to 14, you know, it's usually their teeth that kill them. I float their teeth and I, I'm learning about all that stuff. We actually invented a tool now, the only first ever goat float tool. So you can float their teeth and they do unbelievably better. Un, you can turn a goat around so fast. You know, that goat that, you know, is in that six, seven, eight year old year and you're just like, man, he's just, what's wrong? Just something's wrong. They're not as strong as they used to be. They're starting to kind of slow down. If you literally just ground off the high points on their teeth, like within four days, they are like night and day difference because they just can't chew their food as well. You know, they, right. they're not grinding their food as well. I mean, right. every other form of ungulate that humans raise, you know, you, you float horses teeth all the time. And, you know, we just have never given goats the respect they deserve to take care of their teeth. But if you just file down those little high points in their teeth, which I can teach people to do, man, I mean, you can extend their life and the quality of their life in a huge way. But what ended up getting Chester is that he ended up starting to have kind of like a balance issue. And um, I believe what it was, was that he started to suffer from the stress of his age. I believe he had something kind of extra going on and not unlike a lot of goats, when they're under duress, they deplete their brains of thymine. So one of the ways you can really turn them around is by giving them a vitamin B injection or thymine. But at that point, Chester went downhill so fast and it takes a couple of days of therapy to do it that by the third day he was struggling to get up and that's not uncommon with that thymine you know uh depletion in their brains and so i just we were on the new ranch and there was a lot of things going on i thought about it and i was like chester's 12 and 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 i could probably potentially move mountains but what's going to happen is he's going to end up not being able to get up. And I just don't want to have to kill him when he can't get up. Right. And so for me, I wanted him to die with his boots on. I wanted him to still be able to walk to where I was going to put him down. And it was so sweet because I just was able to gently walk him out to a really beautiful place on our land. And he's the first goat I've ever buried. And it was just really special. Sorry. But no, don't be. That this is we cry over goats. That's who we're goat people. That's yeah. what we do. <laughs> so it was just really special, and I, I never had shared that story with you. But he, it was really cool. He, I could, t I could feel him energetically, feeling appreciative of having the chance to walk to that place rather than being carried or carted or which would have been in some ways a loss of like what made him so special. He was always so able. So yeah. for me, it was just such a gift to give him to put him down while he was still standing rather than, you know, laying down or languishing or any of that kind of stuff. And I don't know, I just felt really blessed to be the person that buried him and put him down and, and did all that stuff. So it, anyway, I never had told you that story. And, you you know, he was such a special goat to you. I think that it was just super neat. So anyway, I just think that these relationships we have with these goats and they're just absolute tough nature and their connection. It's just, it's so special, so special. And I'm so grateful to, to have had a chance to interact with him. He was just such a special dude. Thanks for trusting me with him.
He was just special. So anyway, <laughs> let me move yeah, on. Thanks, Mark. He is mm. such a special guy. And I've wanted, you know, when I heard that it was his time, I've been wanting to chat with you, but we've both, you know, I've been out of touch a little bit, but I'm glad, glad to hear his, his, you know, how his, how his death was. And I'm, and I remember when you texted me and you're like, he got to die on his, you know, with his boots on and on his own feet. And I think that that's, you know, what else that's, that's the right, right way for him to go. So thanks Mark for doing that the right way. And also just giving him an awesome pack out life. You know, he got to really go on a lot of adventures. He did. He did. He had an awesome life. Well, Hey Callie, I feel like we're at such a neat transition point to just say, and it's getting dark. I can see where you are. Um, yeah, I don't, I am like by candlelight, so it's, <laughs> it's okay. So, so I think, I think I kind of want to close things up. Um, I really want to give you the, now I want to let the audience know this is going to be the first episode I've recorded a couple others and everybody who is on my podcast is significant people that I really care about and that I have a relationship with or um, in it is significant, but you were like this really uniform message to the things that represent me, wilderness, pack goats, hunting, survival, um, a look at society in a similar way. Not everybody I have on has like this uniformity uh energetically with me as much as you do. So I really wanted to choose to have you on as my first episode. And um, so I also want to just acknowledge that I don't I haven't really, I don't have a name for it yet. I keep thinking about, you know, the podcast of the, you know, exploration of human excellence or something. I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know what it is yet. I know something right will come. And, and if people that watch this have an idea of what that might be, make suggestions. I'm not going to be fast to try to name this thing. Um, I would rather have it come to me and know that it's the right thing. Cause I don't know it yet, but, but share with us in the ways that people that are listening to this today can find you, help you support you, um, learn more from you, can help you to figure out um, through your wisdom given to them um, how they can then exchange that for a way for you to make a living. How can how can the people who are listening to this bless you while you're blessing them? Where can they find you? What are you doing? How can they help? Oh, thanks, Mark. Well, everyone can help just by finding what makes them joyful and doing that spreading joy. That's what we need. Lots of spreading joy around and kindness, um, as you know, and I'm sure that that's, you know, that's what people are up to. And, um, yeah, as far as like connecting with me specifically, I have a website that is called capricon.com capra, like as in goat C A R A P or P A capra (laughs) and con K. H-A-N. And uh, so that's like the place to find, you know, any uh, where I list like classes and experience, you know, wilderness, wilderness walks and all that kind of stuff like for so that's like a good place to kind of start for connecting and I have a um, a place where people can sign up for uh, email newsletter thing, (laughs) which which I have not sent one single one out yet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but it you know i'll get to it it'll happen and uh yeah so that's that's a good place capricon.com and you know and just then too you have instagram and that sort of thing as well correct 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Instagram is um, also Capricorn. And, oh, you know what's been really fun, Mark? Since mm. uh, the, well, that's actually another. <laughs> there's, have you? There, oh, never mind. Like, <laughs> what, that's what I, I about never minded. Is, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, is uh, there's this, since alone, I'm on this thing called Cameo. Mm-hmm. which I didn't even know what it was. And I thought it was super weird at first, but it's actually really fun. Cause all it is, is making inspirational, supportive, uh, fun videos for people. And it's just helping people have a happier day, you know? And so it's really fun. And I've been able to do that for people. And so if um, people want to get a personalized video of the goats and something, I've been answering like questions for people and stuff through there is on cameo, but, uh, <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's and they can just one. find you on Cameo by searching your name, or how do they? How do they? I don't know about Cameo. Oh, I'll have to tell you about it. Yeah, it's just camp. It's like cameo.com slash Cali Russell or whatever. But there's okay. all there's other alone alone folks on there and stuff too. Well, but, I'll make sure um, I make sure I get all your places. And for those of you guys <laughs> watching, it'll be in the description all the links to Cali stuff. So we'll make sure we have all that in there as well. So we'll we'll put that in there. Yeah, but I think the best, yeah, so anyway, that's the way to connect with me. And if there's, you know, you want to have a, go out on a pack trip with the goats or have a, you know, sort of deep connected wilderness experience, I'm going to be putting some stuff up. Um, Stuff for uh, 2022 isn't up yet, but I'm going to be kind of putting together some cool experiences that I'm excited about. um, So that'll be on there. And um, I haven't started this yet, Mark, but I'm thinking of starting a YouTube too. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see if there's a YouTube in the future, but, um, yeah. So anyway, that's the way to connect with me, but really I just hope people get out there and do what they love and spend a little more time outside and, um, you know, just, just, um, really take the time to kind of connect with, connect with who we are as people and, find someone to go sit around a campfire with, you know, cause that's mm-hmm. just what's the best. Like find a friend, make a little campfire, cook some food around it. That's, you know, that's where it's at. So that's what I, that's what people can do for me. <laughs> oh, well, good. I, I like that. So you guys, I, I really appreciate listening in. I hope you found this insightful and enjoyable and maybe got to cut some gems from Callie cause she's just an amazing human. Um, in this podcast i won't have my plan is not to have a lineage of guests it's to have the same five to ten guests kind of over and over and we'll dive deeper into different subjects there's so much more complexity about cali and and our shared experiences and the things that um uh, i think you'll find interesting and and we'll be diving in deeper in future episodes as long as cali will be willing to entertain me and and crack open her 12 year old laptop and hook up the batteries that are about ready to fail in low light. So um, I really <laughs> appreciate your willingness with that. Um, as far as I go, if you're listening to this podcast, you don't already know where you can find me, patgoats.com, topendadventures.com, and then a new company we're just launching called Hunting University that is geared towards teaching adults the hunting arts. Um, that's kind of how we're choosing to, to, to call it because it truly is an interconnected thing um, when done, uh, what I would say is um, in done, when done responsibly and for the right reasons, it is a, it is a, a God given art form 
um, that's a skill that can be developed and everything else. And so we have a curriculum. We have three-day courses where people can come and and um, learn about you know hunting. And um, we'll have an online course here eventually. And so that's kind of the newest venture. Um, Toppin Adventures is a hunt consulting firm. If you want to go on an elk hunt in Colorado, um, I'm the guy to help put that together or literally any hunt in the world. Um, I'm, I arrange those hunts and the packgoats.com is pretty obvious. Um, if you want to learn more about goats in general, just goat care, lots of courses and the goat club membership and all kinds of fun stuff. And, um, I just appreciate you, Callie. I appreciate the people who spend the time to listen in and, um, so cool. I miss you. Can't wait to see you again super soon. Um, we need to make sure we have a, have a chance maybe to, to do a, a goat trip this summer sometime. And, um, I miss you. Thank you for, yeah, we need to do that. See, Mark, I need to be more of a professional like you. You're like, these are the things I'm doing. These are the websites. This is how you can do have some amazing experiences. I'm just like, oh, I don't know. Maybe there will be a YouTube someday. Maybe I'll send out an email from the website someday. Uh, <laughs> you're so, you're, that's another thing I admire about you is how good you are at staying just together in your professional life, too. It's awesome. I'm definitely uh <laughs> gotta i gotta up my game in that department <laughs> well if you ever if you ever you know we're getting we're getting decent at it so i would always be glad to help so nice part is my <laughs> my my um my employees are who who make me look so good and they do a tremendous job and i've really found some super special people that work for me that are way better at this than i am so um yeah. So can't get there. Can't get there. I'm just kind of the mission minded guy that everybody like wishes would figure out what his calendar is for the next day. Cause I have to be reminded of everything. I just don't have. <laughs> so You're doing anyway. great, Mark. But uh, in that calendar, we should try to schedule a goat pack trip this summer because it's been, it's been too long. It two year. Has it been two years or what? I think about, so. It was, it was the last year and a half been, or something. Well, it was, it was the, when, when we were on the documentary right before, um, you went on alone, I believe is the oh, last Oh yeah. Time. I remember I was stressed out. Cause I was like, I'm going to lose weight on this trip. I can't lose weight. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. You were all, and you were I was all, like eating butter peanut butter, honey tortillas. Remember right. those? That's tortillas? Right. Just like yeah, putting like, all this butter on them and uh -huh. trying to get yeah. fat. <laughs> yeah. You and Carson like drained us of everything, right? So <laughs> We did. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, hey, I got to go out and do chores. It's snowing to beat all band. I got to push some snow. It was great having you, Callie. I miss you a lot. We will sign off. Uh, let me go ahead and hit stop. And thank you guys all so much for listening in and we'll talk soon.